we're here this morning because of the work of Christ. And we have the great privilege of opening the word of Christ. And so this morning, we are going to spend our time together in God's word, and we're going to be in the book of James. And so if you have your Bible, you can open it to James. James chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time. And as the opening lines of James inform us, this, this book was addressed to a group of believers, likely Jewish Christians who were undergoing persecution in the middle of the first century. And throughout this book of James, we see his concern for genuine, authentic Christian living. The concern is that the believer's life would be consistent with his profession of faith. And James, like our Lord, is concerned about single-minded devotion. James gives very practical instruction for us for how we ought to live our Christian lives as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this book, two of the themes that we see are one, trials. Often when we think of the book of James, we immediately think about what he has to say concerning trials. And then a second theme is that of wisdom. And in the text before us this morning, we're going to see these two themes interwoven, the theme of trial and the theme of wisdom. No doubt these readers to whom James was writing had need for wisdom as they were enduring various trials and certainly the same is true for us this morning. The difficulty lies not in acknowledging the certainty of trials but rather in rightly responding to them. And so in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that our gracious God gives us instruction. He gives us help for how we are to endure trials. We're going to read James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 all the way through verse 8 and then focus our attention, especially on verses 5 through 8. So will you stand, please, in honor of God? We're going to read his word together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You can be seated. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for your kind instruction to us. And our prayer as the gathered people of God is that you would come and be our teacher. Open our hearts and give us understanding. Make us like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you've, you've heard it said that you are either just coming out of a trial, you're presently in a trial, or you're about to enter into a trial. 
we recognize readily that trials are a part of our lives as followers of Christ. If you just take a moment and think over the past week, what are the trials that the Lord has brought you through? And even this morning as we sit here, what are the trials that we're facing even at this time? And for the believer, trials must be viewed as God-ordained means of conforming us to Christ-likeness. Trials then are not without purpose. The trials that we face are not random events that come into our lives that yield no fruit, but rather they're, they're a means of growth. They make us more like Christ our Savior. And in our heads, certainly we affirm this, there's purpose and trial in our sufferings and, and we often think about those in Scripture who endured much. We think about Joseph sold into bondage by his brothers, falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned and then forgotten, And then raised to a place of prominence so that God could bring to pass his plans for his people. We think about Hannah and the struggle that she had. The trial of infertility and the mocking that she received because she was barren. And how she longed longed for a child. But the Lord had closed her womb. Only later to open her womb and to bless her with a child. The prophet, Samuel, who would be used by God in a mighty way. Certainly, the trials in Hannah's life were not without purpose. Or we can think about David and the trials he faced at the hands of the deranged King Saul as he sought to take his life. And no doubt, those trials drew David close to his God. We read about it in the Psalms. And so we affirm the place of trials in the lives of God's children But it can be very difficult to remember that there's purpose in our trials when the trials appear in our own lives. How kind of God. How kind of God to give us instruction. To give us help for how we are to endure trials. In order for us to understand what is, what is being said here in verses 5 through 8, let's, let's look together at the verses that come just before this. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. Here we see that we are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Notice this word, various. This tells us that trials come in many different forms. Some are great, life-altering trials. The unexpected death of a loved one. The loss of a job. Diagnosis of a terminal illness. These are great trials. And then there are other trials. Sometimes thought as lesser trials. Some that seem to have little consequence. Things like road construction. The proverbial spilled milk at the table. The sprained ankle, 
James says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. And the reason we see that we are to count it all joy is because they are purposeful. These trials come for our testing. And this testing produces in us steadfastness, endurance. And this steadfastness, this endurance makes us complete. We think about this idea of endurance and steadfastness. We can think about athletes who are training, training for an event. And they would talk readily of, of the necessity of building up strength and endurance for the event. And we were to, if we were to ask them, uh, any athlete who's achieved any sort of success, they would no doubt talk about the pain they endured. How the, the training, the steadfastness, the endurance took time. And certainly the same is true for us as believers. We may say that without trials, without this testing in our lives, we will not become, in fact, we cannot become the people God has destined us to be. Trials are the God-ordained means of making us like Christ. And so with those comments on verses 2 through 4, let's look at verse 5. And here, what we, what we see is that we must ask for wisdom. The first thing we notice is we must ask for wisdom. I, I want to look at, at verse 5 just from a high level and make some comments about that. And then we're going to come back and dig a little bit deeper. So the first thing, as you look at verse 5, you will notice three things. The first one is a condition. Second, we will see instruction. And third, a result. Let's look first at the condition. James says, if, if any of you lack wisdom. This is written in such a way to communicate this. If, if you lack wisdom, and let's assume that this is true. If any of you lack wisdom, certainly some in James' day were in desperate need for wisdom as they had encountered various trials. And the same is true for us this morning. As we consider the trials that we are facing just in this room alone, we would acknowledge we are in need of wisdom. So first, the condition. Second, the instruction. Second, the instruction. The command, the imperative, let him ask of God. This isn't a suggestion. Rather, it's a command. All who meet this condition, namely those who lack wisdom, here's what you're to do. Ask God. And third, we see the result. It will be given to him. So we have the condition, if, if you lack wisdom. The command, let him ask God. And the result, it will be given to him. So let's go back through these now. If any of you lack wisdom, it's right for us to consider what is wisdom? What is wisdom? We may say that, that wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And certainly there's more that could be said. An appropriate place for us to learn about wisdom is to go to the book of Proverbs, much of which was, was written by what the Bible tells us, uh, or whom the Bible tells us, was the wisest man who ever lived, namely Solomon. And in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does it mean to fear God? A person who fears God recognizes God's rightful place of authority. God's place of authority and his own place of submission and dependence. Here is one who fears the Lord. One who acknowledges God's proper place of authority and his own place of submission and dependence. A person who fears the Lord acknowledges God's sovereign rule over all things and rests in his rule. It's the one who understands that trials come into one's life as purposeful from the hand of a loving heavenly father who's working all things for good for those who love him to the end that he is glorified. Here is what it means to fear the Lord. We could say then that wisdom, wisdom is, is the ability to accurately evaluate a circumstance. Right? There's that knowledge, appropriating knowledge. So it's the ability to accurately evaluate a, circumstances, a circumstance, recognizing God's proper place of authority, my place of submission, and then responding in a way that glorifies God. So we could say wisdom, wisdom is the ability to accurately evaluate a, situ- a situation, a circumstance, and then respond in a way that God is glorified. Trials, trials then have a way of exposing our need for this kind of wisdom because it's in the midst of the trial that we struggle to understand the situation accurately. That is, from a biblical perspective, from a God-centered perspective. And then to respond in a way that God is glorified, that God is honored. Lack of wisdom can be manifested in many ways. We manifest our lack of wisdom in grumbling in the midst of trial, in anger toward God, disregarding or ignoring the trial in hopes that it will just go away, lashing out at others, isolating ourselves. All of these demonstrate our need for wisdom as we encounter various trials. So what do we do? As we find ourselves encountering trials of various kinds, we, we say, Lord, Lord, I don't understand. Why is this happening now? We can recognize we have lack of wisdom, but there is hope. There is hope for us as children of God. There's a command for us. Yes, those of us who lack wisdom, James says, let him ask of God. The command to ask for wisdom implies that we are unable to endure trials on our own. We need help. We need help, and we must ask. In the book of James, we hear, as we read through the book of James, we hear the words of our Lord. And this call for us to ask for wisdom reminds us of Jesus' teaching in Matthew the Sermon on the Mount, you're familiar with these verses. Matthew chapter 7 and verse, verse 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So James says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God. He should ask God for it. This word ask is in the present tense and communicates ongoing action. We who lack wisdom should continually ask God for it. Just a brief look at our lives we will we, demonstrates that, that wisdom is needed as we endure various kinds of trials. Trials come in many ways and we recognize our need for wisdom on a daily basis. And if we are if we are to respond in a way that God is glorified. So if we recognize our need for wisdom, and we're here instructed to continually ask for it, how can we be assured that God will give us wisdom he's instructed us to ask for? The answer is found in the words that follow. God, who gives generously to all without reproach, Our confidence that we will receive wisdom is bound up or grounded in the character of God. Our confidence that we will receive wisdom is bound up in the character of God. What do we learn about his character here? We see, first of all, that God is a God who gives generously to all, to those who ask. He gives generously. This this word generously could also be translated singly or wholeheartedly. The idea is that God gives from a heart of single-mindedness, without hesitation, without reservation. This, of course, is in contrast to the double-minded person spoken of a bit later. God is single-minded in his willingness to give to those who ask. Again, we remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 7, now in verse 9. Of which one of you, if, he asks, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Our God is lavish in his generosity. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't ask for wisdom in trials is because we have doubts. We sometimes question the character of God, his goodness. We wonder about God's goodness to his children. There's so much to learn from the book of, from the Psalms. In the Psalms, we see repeatedly the psalmist coming before the Lord and pouring their hearts out. Asaph wrestled with how he was to process life, how, is he, how he was to think about life in Psalm 77. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Here's a man in great distress. He says in verse 4, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. And then in verse 9, he says, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? 
Maybe the words of Asaph resonate with us. When we're enduring the intensity of a trial, we cry out, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? Have you in anger shut up your compassion? But James reminds us here that God gives generously. He gives single-mindedly. It's of his character to do so. Not only does he give in this way, but he gives without reproach. One dictionary defines reproach, this word translated reproach in this way, to find fault in a way that demeans the other. To find fault in a way that demeans the other. It means to revile, to mock, to heap insults upon as a way of shaming. When our Lord was on the cross, hanging on the cross, suspended as it were between heaven and earth, and the the people who passed by, they mocked him. And in verse 44 of Matthew 27, it says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also, here's the word, reviled him. They reviled him in the same way. James tells us that our God gives wisdom to those who ask, and he does so without reproach. He does so without finding fault in a way that is demeaning to those who ask. He does so without heaping insults upon us as a way of shaming us for coming to him and asking for help. Here's the character of our God. Those of us who have spent any time around children, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher, a babysitter, or those who've been tasked with training an employee, we can, we can readily identify with the struggle we have to respond graciously when someone asks us the same question or asks for the same thing again and again and that same thing again Think of my own interaction with my children again. And it's easy, perhaps the first time or two, maybe three on a good day, we can respond graciously, but there's a limit, isn't there? And sometimes we're quick to let them know when someone has crossed that line. But our God is not like this. He invites his poor children to come to him to ask for help and to do so as often as is needed. Listen to the words of John Calvin as he comments on this verse. Here's what he writes. This is added lest anyone should fear to come too often to God. Those who are the most liberal among men, that is, the most generous, the most gracious, those who are the most liberal among men, when anyone asks often to be helped, mention their former acts of kindness and thus excuse themselves for the future. Hence, a mortal man, however orphaned he may be, we are ashamed to weary by asking too often. But James reminds us that there is nothing like this in God, for he is ready ever to add new blessings to former ones without any end or limitation. 
Our God is lavish in his goodness and grace. He loves to give good things. He loves to give wisdom to his children. Hear the words of Psalm 81 and verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then this. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. If you lack wisdom, ask me, says the Lord, and I will give it to you. Certainly, the grace of God is beyond our understanding. It's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the believers would grasp the greatness of God and why at the end of 11 chapters in the book of Romans, Paul erupts in praise saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, how mysterious are his ways. Lest we doubt the gracious character of our God, and his willingness to bestow good things on those who ask, we fix our eyes on the cross of Christ. For it was on the cross that God demonstrated his love for sinners in a way unequaled. The great love of the Father for his own compelled him to send his one and only Son into the world. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, and then died. And then was raised from the dead. So sinners, like us, could be redeemed. When we doubt, seeing the rebellion of our own hearts, right, that we could ever approach the throne of a holy God and ask for wisdom in the midst of a trial, we must remember what we learn in Romans Romans 5 and verse 8 we read, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at the lowest of the low. Wallowing in the filth of our corruption, of our flesh while we were running away from God it was in that condition Christ died for us he came to us and he redeemed us out of that lest we doubt God's goodness lest we doubt God's willingness to bestow on his people good things God the one who gives generously without reproach we have access to the very throne room of God because of what Christ has done. Christ has made a way. The great high priest, the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who is tempted every way that we are, yet without sin. He's given us access to God. By Christ, we have the ability to come to our Heavenly Father and ask, Oh God, I need your wisdom.
I need your wisdom. Christ has paid our sin debt in full. We're united to him by faith. And if you're here this morning and you haven't surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must do so today. Because apart from Christ, there is no hope in the difficulties of this life. But the difficulties and the pains of this life pale in comparison to the difficulties and the pains that will be suffered for eternity for those who don't trust in Christ. Today is the day to turn from sin. To put your trust completely in the furnished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who have, we who are united to Christ by faith, the call for us is to ask God for wisdom and trust that he will give it. Our hope is grounded in the character of God. The one who demonstrated his generosity supremely in the cross. And the result of our asking is that we will receive wisdom. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the trial will go away. Isn't this often what we ask for? Lord, just take it away. We remember the words of our Lord, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord will give us grace to endure. So let's, let's back up now for a moment and just consider where we've been. We looked briefly at trials, verses 2 through 4. We recognize there is purpose in the trial. Trials come for testing, building our endurance, our steadfastness. As God is conforming us to the image of Christ, there's a goal in mind, there's a purpose for us. And when we consider that goal, we're able to count trials joy, count it all joy when we encounter these trials. And this wisdom, uh, we, we recognize then our need for wisdom and, and it sounds simple enough until we actually enter into the trial and then we recognize, goodness, I'm in great need here and so we recognize I'm in need and so we come to the Father and we ask and because of who he is, we trust that we will receive what we need to endure. Our Lord will grant the wisdom required. But after giving this instruction then for us to ask for wisdom, James tells us how we are to carry out this request. He says, we are to ask in faith. Here we're taught how we are to ask. We're to ask in faith. Here's the condition. We must ask in faith with no doubting. Isn't our life as a follower of Christ one of faith? We began by faith. And we continue by faith. We hear the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews when he says, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. James says then that we are to ask in faith. To ask in faith. And, and to ask in faith is to believe that one, God is who he says he is. And that two, God will do what he says he will do. In short, to ask in faith is to take God at his word. 
To ask in faith is to take God at his word. And in this instance, taking God at his word means that we believe, we believe that God will grant to us the wisdom we need to endure trials. We take God at his word. Can we not say that, can we not say with absolute certainty that whatever the Lord has said he would do, he has done? How often has our Lord kept us through a trial? Has he sustained his people? How often has he helped us to maybe look back on the trial and see his gracious hand? And can we not say, I see this now. Those who are enduring trials, those of us, all of us, as we're enduring trials now, can we not say God is sustaining us? Helping us to see things from a biblical, from a God-centered perspective? Has God ever failed his people? Ever once? And so what causes us to doubt? What causes our lack of faith? Sometimes it's just the intensity of the trial. At other times it's, it's the longevity. Years, years of enduring this trial Sometimes it's just the crushing weight. We find ourselves crying out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Perhaps it's just a feeling of loneliness or despair as we're walking through this trial. Other times it's just the nature of the trial, and we say things like, I never imagined my trials would take this form. It's precisely when we're in these circumstances that by God's enabling grace, we must look beyond ourselves and our circumstances and take God at his word. We remember these words, God, you are faithful. You are faithful. And though we know this to be true, we can readily identify with the man Jesus we talk about in Mark chapter 9. This man whose whose son is is sick. He's, He's afflicted with an evil spirit, and so this man brings him to Jesus. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, that is, if you can believe, All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And then we know what happened. Jesus healed the boy of the unclean spirit. Is this not often how we cry out? Lord, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust you. Help me to believe and not to doubt. The reason then that we're to ask in faith with no doubting is given in the verses then that follow here back in James. 
The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. One commentator says, The picture here is not of a wave mounting in height and crashing to shore, but of the swell of the sea, never having the same texture and shape from moment to moment, but always changing with the variations in wind, direction, and strength. We can picture it, can't we? The rolling waves of the sea. No stability. This is the image of the one who doubts the very character of God. James goes further and says this person is a double-minded person. If we turn over just a few chapters in the book of James, James chapter 4 and in verse 4, James speaks very pointedly to the readers. And he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is saying that this just can't be. Friendship with the world and a friend of God. And then in verse 8, he says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Here it is, you double-minded. We know that James is concerned about single-minded devotion to God. A double-minded person, he says, is unstable in all his ways. He's unstable in all his ways. This speaks of his whole way of life. This is not speaking of an occasional lapse of faith. For who would qualify? This person, this double-minded person, is marked by instability, vacillation, unwilling to let go of the world and trust in God. One who gives lip service to God but refuses to believe. And this person, says James, shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. And he shouldn't expect to receive because he doesn't ask from a heart of faith. And so we ask ourselves this morning, what are the trials that we are enduring? What are the trials that we're facing? They're physical. They're spiritual. They're emotional. Many trials. And the exhortation for us this morning is this, if we lack wisdom, that is, if we lack the ability to evaluate the situation Evaluate a situation from God's perspective and then respond in a way that is pleasing to God, then the call for us is to ask for wisdom. Ask God and believe that in his perfect way and in his perfect timing, he will give what we ask because it's of his character to do so. We know this because God has demonstrated his immeasurable grace, and has given to us the greatest gift by sending his Son, our Savior, Jesus, to reconcile us to himself. We're going to celebrate the reality of that union, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in just a few minutes when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. 
And so I would invite the men who are going to, to help pass out the elements uh, to, to go ahead and, and prepare to do that. And as we think about the Lord's Supper, it's, it's right for us to take a few minutes and ask, what are we doing in this? We remember at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to pour out his own blood. He was going to pour out his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, this is what he did. Christ gave himself as a perfect, complete, all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. As we think about the Lord's Supper, we remember in his death, Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God for all who would be united to him by faith in his Son. This means there's no more debt to be paid. The work is completed. And so, as, as the gathered body of Christ, as the church, we partake of the Lord's Supper together. And in so doing, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus Christ until his return. Do we hear the hope in this? We proclaim the death of Christ, that death that he suffered in our place until he returns. We believe he's coming again. We remember the work of Christ on our behalf and we proclaim his death. The Lord's Supper at Bethany Community Church is open to all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins you don't have to be a member of Bethany Community, but our encouragement would be that you would be pursuing membership in a local church. If you haven't placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our prayer, even now, is that you would do so. You would turn from sin and put your full trust in the finished work of Christ. We're going to pray together. And as the men pass out the elements... Let's take a few moments to reflect on God's glorious gospel, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as we prepare to take the supper together. So let's pray and then we can pass out. Father, we thank you this morning for who you are. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We confess our great need for your wisdom. We need your help. And we trust that when we ask in faith, you will give to us what is needed. Thank you most of all for Jesus, our Savior. We have hope because of what Christ has accomplished. And as we, your people, prepare to take of the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim the death of our Savior with great joy. We anticipate your return. Bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.